probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome to the Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me this week is... Michelle Ashey from MichelleAshey.com. I've known Michelle for a pretty long time. Like we... 10 years or more? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> we live in the same house, and we have a cat together. <laughs> yeah. We... And we're married. Yeah, that too. <laughs> And we've watched the thing lots and lots of times. It's definitely one of one of our shared favorites, I think, right? Yeah. All right, so minute number five starts with the first gunshots at the dog and ends a minute later with um, R.J. McCready having just destroyed his chess computer. So this is a pretty iconic scene from the movie, I think, uh, for a couple of reasons. It's really our introduction to the main character of McCready, first of all. Um, last week we had, like, five frames, so we talked a, a good bit about uh, McCready there, but... This is really where they start to establish him as a character. So I guess the kind of the main thing that always gets brought up about this part is that the chess computer is represents the only female part of the cast of the movie. Uh, it's voiced by Adrian Barbeau. Who's his wife. <laughs> yeah, so they were married at the time and they... Um, she was in the fog that came that was the not the previous movie he had done escape from new york but she was yeah she was uh, one of the main characters in the fog obviously no she was in escape from new york too that's right she She's was in both one of the main ladies <laughs> yeah so she was in both of those and um you know obviously was one of his kind of uh standbys but yeah they were married at the time i'm not sure how long they had been married i think they got divorced 2 years after this <laughs> yeah, which the movie after this is Christine, and she's not in that, right? I don't think so. I don't think she is. Maybe um, it has something to do with what Kurt Russell says to her in this minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it was like a, some blowback from, from the writing here. Yeah, so obviously that's one of the things. Uh, I brought it up a little bit last week, but I think it's probably something that will come up a lot over the course of this show is the fact that there are no uh, men on the cast which is obviously something that gets brought up a lot and as a as a as either an oddity or a negative. And it's something that I've always kind of thought about as a negative just in terms of, you know, it doesn't seem like, it, you know, basically on real life, obviously there are female scientists in Antarctica and, you know, there's no reason why there shouldn't be a woman in the cast. And, you know, up until recently, I didn't really think about this movie as being like particularly masculine. Like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, there's nothing like, masculine inherent in the plot or what's good, great about this movie. Like, I don't think having a woman in it would have really changed it in a negative way at all. But recently when we watched it, one of the things we really were kind of um, keeping an eye out for was the the idea of the thing as a AIDS metaphor, which is something I ha I've thought about, but I haven't really, you know, watched the movie with that in mind. And, um, and that having the whole male cast, I think, does kind of benefit for that, just in the sense that at the time AIDS was like, uh, you know, it was this really terrifying thing that people didn't know where it was coming from or what caused it or how it was transmitted. And, you know, it was predominantly affecting the gay community. So it was something that was, you know, I, I think the male cast really kind of augments that 
looking at the movie in that way too, for sure. So I saw that there was this one post on Reddit and it highlighted kind of the things you were saying. It like mirrored some themes throughout the movie. It's an all-male cast, which I feel like reflects how the disease mostly affected the gay community at the time. And the actual infection with the thing is hidden. You kind of appear normal, but could have it. And you could also infect others. And the whole blood test part, I think it like determines if you're still human or infected. And also, I think the article, it said that the majority of the thing infection seems to happen like one-on-one in an intimate setting. Yeah, I mean, that definitely ties it to like a, you know, kind of a sexual thing. If it is it is kind of behind closed doors and it's one-on-one, that definitely makes sense, too. And also all the torn, like, underwear or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and then I read another article, I think it was from The Atlantic, and it discussed it less about the AIDS epidemic and more about homosexual panic and how these fairly normal men are all paranoid and trying to search out who is and isn't normal or who doesn't fit in like themselves. And it, I think the article, it said like it focuses more on the male to male relationship because without any women in the film, you can't root out who like the love interest is or who the macho man is. There's no damsel in distress to protect. So for the most part, everybody comes off sort of normal, average, and like they're hiding something. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess, you know, it kind of disguises some of the like kind of normal stereotypical character tropes that some of these characters could be because, like you say, there's not, there's, you know, if there had been a, a woman on the cast, you know, even if the plot hadn't focused on it um, or even made anything of it, just by nature of kind of what we know of the language of storytelling that, you know, you'd kind of automatically assume that that one of the one of the men would be in love with the woman and that would be a part of the story. And unfortunately, that's just kind of the way, you know, obviously not all stories have to be that way, but a lot of them are. And that's been kind of built into a stereotype that, that we kind of rely on a lot. And I don't know if Carpenter purposefully made the underlying themes about AIDS, but it definitely seems to reflect the fear of the unknown during the time, like the 70s and 80s. Or I guess late 70s. When when did they start filming? 81. Yeah, so 80s. But you have AIDS, drugs, there's needle use throughout the whole film. Yeah, that's true. And that's also like how HIV gets spread around through dirty needles. <laughs> uh, the Cold War, who can like you really trust? And what if your neighbor is the monster in disguise? <laughs> yeah, I mean, watching it with that in mind, there's, you know, there's stuff I'll definitely bring up in other minutes that I think really kind of go along with that theme more than I really realized. Some of the things in the background and some of the relationships between some of the characters kind of play play into that more than I really thought about. Because John Carpenter always, when asked about it, always is just like, oh, you know, we just thought it'd be really neat. And, <laughs> you know, it'd be great if there were no women around to distract <laughs> all of us men. And, you know, um, there was only actually one female on the crew. I might have mentioned this last week. Only one woman on the crew, um, I don't know exactly what her position was, but she was pregnant at the time they started filming, and so she eventually had to leave production, leaving it an all-male cast and all-male crew, with the exception of herself and Adrian Barbo's voice as the chess computer. So it's safe to say this fails the uh, Bechdel test? Uh, yeah, I'd say it fails it pretty hard. <laughs> Unless there's like a secret uh, female thing running around. <laughs> no. And even there was there was a deleted scene that may or may not have been around here. I'm not 100% sure. But um, the only other 
potentially female character that we see is a blow-up doll in McCready's shack in some deleted scenes, (laughs) which seems very silly for a movie this serious, which I'm guessing is why they ended up cutting that element out. That seems a little out of character for the movie. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't know, like... I was trying to, like, in the background of stuff, you sometimes see, like, pictures of ladies, but I don't feel like it's ever overtly, like, in your face. No, (laughs) not really. Yeah, so, I mean, even... Even the voice here is something that I probably didn't even notice the first time I watched it, really. Although, obviously, I wasn't really watching it with that in mind. But, <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of an interesting interesting factoid there. So, a couple of things to bring up in this minute outside of that. One question is, why is... Uh, McCready does not necessarily strike me as a chess player. <laughs> why, why do you think he's playing chess? I think it's mostly out of boredom. Because you kind of get that from what he says, like oh, you're starting to lose it. Like, they've been playing this game for so long, I think. And he's just, like, holed up in his little shack with his uh, whiskey in hand. He's the most interesting man in Antarctica right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. playing chess. (laughs) I I would agree. I think it's a boredom thing. And I think they go to lengths to actually make all the men seem like they're really kind of bored and, like, Almost like this whole thing that's about to happen is kind of welcome at first, at least, is just kind of a distraction. I mean, definitely the stuff with like the game show on the VHS later and, and stuff like that seems like they're. Um, that's one of the maybe minor criticisms that people lay at the movie is that it doesn't seem like any of these people really have anything to do in Antarctica. <laughs> like, obviously, it's a science research base, and there's some guys who are clearly scientists or doctors, but. Um, you know, for the most part, it's like kind of what are these guys doing here? Like, what's kind of their point? Yeah, it feels like they're just sort of like keeping maintenance of the building more than anything. Like, maybe there's scientists coming in in the spring to do real science work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they're just like killing time until then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, looking back at like the book and stuff, um, it's like Nor- Norris and. Um, Bennings are supposed to be like meteorologists who would probably be the people doing the most actual research at the base, but they do none of that here. I think maybe there's one part where Norris talks about the weather when McCready's about to fly, but otherwise, you know, there's very little of that. But yeah, it's just kind of one of those, uh, yeah, you have to wonder. It seems like it's more of a, they wanted to have a, a cast of characters that's more kind of diverse and interesting group of people than actually really working to like, define why they're there or what they do which makes sense from a you know a writing perspective so there's uh just some some information on the the computer some really the chess wizard yes that's right <laughs> it's um it's an apple II computer so one of the early apple computers that i think was pretty rare at the time still not not something that many people had and the game is sargon 2 which uh was one of the best-selling computer games in the early 80s and it was uh, at the time was speculated to be the best computer chess. Like it actually competed in some tournaments, which is kind of funny. <laughs> but I doubt when it competed, it had the sultry voice of Adrian Barbeau I included. <laughs> I don't think that was part of the game. But I wonder if when any of those chess masters got beat by the computer, if they had the same reaction as McCready did. Well, I feel like with his reaction, it really shows just how masculine he feels. <laughs> like, he is not going to lose to this woman, a chess computer, which kind of ties back into the other theory about being, I guess, afraid of uh, homosexuality, maybe, or feeling less of a man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a definite possibility. I mean, I think probably on the, in the, on the surface, it's like, it's kind of this, like, badass, goofy 
you know, funny introduction to the character, but I think looking at it on a deeper front, I think that's probably true. And, and it then really, he destroys it. Yeah, <laughs> they're like they know that it's it's like the it's about to be the first day of winter, and they you know this is like his only form of entertainment in his shack, and he just pours his drink into it like no big deal. Like I think he's going to get in trouble for one. Like, well, yeah, how expensive was that? <laughs> yeah, that apple two is probably very expensive. Yeah, and he just pours the drink right into it, and you know, I love the way it sparks. It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Um, you also have to wonder what that little hatch on the front of the computer is even for. Like, what it's is just it? for pouring drinks. It kind of <laughs> seems like it. Like, I don't even know what the point of that is. It's not like the floppy disk porter. Like, I don't know what that's supposed to be. Yeah, the other question I have about this is like, what is this shack, and why does that's what I was wondering? Why does he live separate <laughs> from everybody else? He has his own little shack, and I, you know, it's. I think the first time I saw this, I thought maybe he was like the meteorologist kind of character or something that he's like kind of in this shack that's up on stilts, you know, so he can like see a blizzard coming or something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, we know he flies a helicopter. Yes. But what would the shack have to do with that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's like they're keeping him separate too. I guess, it, I don't know, in one sense, I guess from a writing perspective, it, it makes him immediately like... Outsider. Or a more important character than the others, even, yeah. too. Stand just that alone. he stands out from the pack, that he's not, like, just among the group playing in the rec room. He's in his own room. Well, also, his shack is kind of, like, up above everything. So it kind of gives him, like, he's this watchful guy, which comes into play later. Like, he's kind of the man in charge. So he has, like, his own little tower up high, and he can just observe everything. Yeah, I mean, he definitely becomes that. I think... I think the movie, when they were making it initially, was not really intended for the character McCready to be the star. He's not really in the book. He's one of the leads, but he's not, you know, the main character. I think it was really intended to be an um, ensemble piece, which since the our last week when we talked all about Bill Lancaster and how odd it is that the guy who wrote Bad News Bears went along <laughs> to write this. But actually, the um, Stuart Cohen's really interesting blog, he talked a lot about why they chose him. And it actually makes a lot of sense that that, that movie, which I don't know if I've actually ever seen the original, is um, it's more about a group of people and about what they do on the baseball field, not about an individual story or anything like that. So I think when they initially made the movie or started making the movie, the, the thing was intended to be like a real ensemble piece. There wasn't like a standout, but I think they found it was hard for audiences to really figure out who they should identify with, especially in a movie where you don't know, you know, who's bad and who's good, who's a monster and who's a human. You need at least one character that you can kind of latch onto, even if at some points in the movie, you don't know whether he's, you know, gone crazy or become the thing or anything like that. Yeah. Kurt Russell fits that. <laughs> definitely. He's, he's definitely, the badass. <laughs> yeah. He's definitely a, a badass. And you know, this is, this comes right off the heels of him playing uh, snake Plissken. So, you know, not necessarily the same kind of character, but a similar kind of like just badass masculine lead, I guess. I'd also like to know if it's written in like Kurt Russell's contracts that have great facial hair. <laughs> true. I, yeah. Like everything he has like giant mustaches, weird like beards. <laughs> this is true. I think the only stuff he doesn't have like heavy facial hair, like the kind of romantic comedy stuff. The, the, the Kurt Russell movies I haven't really seen. <laughs> Pretty much everything I've seen. Yeah, I'm you have to wonder. Is, <laughs> was it really written for him to be like? You know, this bearded mountain man or, or, uh, or, you know, was that just how he looked normally? And that was, you know, John Carpenter was cool with that. 
Yeah, does anyone else have beards in this? Uh, Clark has a beard. <laughs> Maybe there's a theory behind all the beards. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's some, there, that's one of the many secret clues as to who's the, the thing. The thing is. can't grow facial hair right away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if they make a third thing movie, that'll probably be the next thing. Some stupid thing about beards being like, you know, if they try and cut your facial hair and, and <laughs> you know, it doesn't shave right or something. The only other real note I have for this uh, minute, I guess, is that uh, we're, we've been k- keeping track of the shots fired because we mentioned last week that it's um, kind of odd. I don't think of this movie as like a gunplay movie, but I think there's supposed to be 52 gunshots throughout the film, which seems crazy to me. So I started <laughs> counting them as we go. This minute has four gunshots, all you know from the Norwegian shooting at the dog. That brings us to a total of 16 so far. So I think that's that's more or less all I had for, for this minute specifically. Any, anything that you had in your notes or, or were you thinking um, about? Just that there's no music in this scene. Yeah, that's true. I think that goes on for like this whole week. Yeah. After that, the intro music cue with the main theme and them chasing it, once we're introduced to the Outpost 31 and the camp, there's, this really, there really isn't any music. And that goes a lot of the tensest mo- moments in the movie when you really don't know what's going on or what to expect. There's not a lot of music, which is kind of an interesting choice, especially for John Carpenter, who's, you know, very famous for his own music. But then also he was such a big Ennio Marconi fan. It's a, a little surprising to me because that shows shows the restraint that he has and not, you know, going overboard with that. And, you know, I think we talked about that there's music that he didn't even use, which is kind of crazy. So, yeah, this is one of those just very kind of character driven introduction moments. Yeah, with no music. So I think that's that's will probably cover us for this minute. Where can people find you, Michelle, again? At michelleashy.com. Yeah, so check it out. So um, anything that we talked about in this episode uh, that has a relevant link or anything like that, we'll post in the show notes. And we'll be back tomorrow with another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out. (laughs) 